0: Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Psalms, and we're going to be looking at chapter 33, verses 8 through 12. Psalms 33, verses 8 through 12. You may have noticed when you came in this morning that there are some new sound panels on the walls. Eventually, these sound panels will go all the way around, and we believe that they are going to uh, greatly improve the sound quality of this room. And so, uh, just be aware that over the next few weeks, you'll be seeing some things in progress under construction. And and uh, also, James just asked me to put a bug in your ear as well. We're going to be having some work days. We're making these ourselves. It's not rocket science necessarily, but we just need some people to come and help wrap some panels and staple the fabric onto the back. And so we'll be having some work days soon on that and hope that you can help with that as well. Well, happy 4th of July weekend to all of you. Tomorrow, we will celebrate the 246th birthday of this great nation. And we will do so by gathering with friends and family and grilling meat and blowing stuff up and celebrating the freedoms that God has given us. While there are many things about our country that give us cause for concern, we should still be grateful to live in a land where we can freely gather to worship our Lord as we choose without fear of persecution or harassment or intimidation. That is a luxury that many of our brothers and sisters throughout history, and even in other places in the world today, Do not enjoy. So may we never, never take that freedom for granted. This morning, we continue our series in the book of Psalms by looking at a portion of Psalm 33. I chose this psalm for today because it is a psalm that speaks to the sovereignty of God over the nations of the earth. Indeed, the title of today's sermon is Our God is Lord over the nations. This morning, we're going to look at three great truths for us to consider, for us to keep in the front of our mind, as we celebrate this weekend the birth of our nation. Before we pick up reading in verse 8, I want to give just a little bit of context to the first seven verses of this psalm. Verses 1 through 7 of Psalm 33 focus on praising God for his excellence in creation. In some ways, these verses are very similar to what we read two weeks ago in Psalm 8. I particularly love the second half of verse five, which says the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Isn't that the truth? Everywhere we look, we see the goodness of God. Everywhere we look, we see the fingerprints of God on all the things that he has made. And then verses six and seven go into further detail describing the splendor of God in creation, how he breathed the heavenly hosts into existence, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, how he gathered the waters of the sea and set the boundaries of the oceans. The psalmist wants us to see the majesty and power of our creator God because that establishes the basis for what he's going to say next. So let's now read verses 8 and 9 where we will find the first of three Great truths for us to consider this morning. Here is what those verses say. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Great truth number 1, the Lord is worthy of the worship of the nations. While the term worship is not directly found in these verses, there are two words here that are central to the idea of worship. In verse 8, we find the word fear, and we also find the word awe. To worship God is to have, number one, a deep sense of fear and reverence for who he is, to have a sense of fear and reverence for his holiness. And it is also to have a sense of profound awe of His bigness and our smallness. To worship God is to be in awe of His power and might. So-called worship that does not produce a holy fear of God, nor invoke a sense of awe at being in His presence, cannot truly be called worship at all. Worship must never bring God down to man's level. It should always exalt God to a place of honor and reverence where he is worshiped as the Lord over us. This kind of worship is what the psalmist has in mind in verse 8 when he describes all the inhabitants of the world fearing the Lord and standing in awe of him. This scene, by the way, is what God deserves. This scene is why we carry out the Great Commission because the Lord is worthy of the worship of the nations of the earth. And why is he worthy? Verse 9 gives us the answer. It says that God is worthy of our worship because he is the creator. He spoke all things into existence. It says, He spoke and it was done, He commanded and it stood fast. For instance, in Genesis 1, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God said, Let there be firmament, or sky, and there was sky. God said, Let the waters separate, and let there be land, and there was land. You get the point. God spoke this entire world into existence solely by the power of his word. How can we not have a holy fear of a God such as that? How can we not stand in awe of him? How can we not give him the worship that he is due? Indeed, when all is said and done, that is exactly what God will have. He will have the worship of the nations. We know this because Revelation 7 gives us a little glimpse into the throne room of heaven where John sees a great multitude which no one could number of all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne, waving palm branches and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. As surely as you and I sit here this morning, that day is coming. Did you know that there is coming a day when the nations of the world, at least in terms of earthly governments, will be no more? There is coming a day when America will be no more. When Jesus returns as king, there will only be the kingdom of God. And the Bible says that it will fill the whole earth. The Lord is worthy of of the worship of the nations, and one day he will have it. Let's continue reading now, verses 10 and 11. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Great truth number two that we take from these verses is that the Lord is sovereign over the nations. Now, before we look more closely at verses 10 and 11, let's make sure that we define our terms. Sometimes we take for granted that everyone knows what a term means when that's actually not the case. And by the way, anytime you don't know a particular biblical or theological term, that's okay because we all have to learn sometime. I had a person ask me one time, and I don't remember who it was now. It was a long time ago. It was you, forgive me. But, Josh, what do you mean when you say that God is sovereign? That's a word that we throw around a lot, but what are we really saying when we say that? Well, the dictionary defines the word this way, having supreme rank, power, or authority. So when we say that God is sovereign, we are actually saying he ranks higher than any other being in the universe that ultimately all power and all authority belong to him. God, then, is not dependent on anyone else or anything else to accomplish his perfect will, nor can anyone thwart what he has planned and decreed. Now, again, the actual word sovereign is not found in verses 10 and 11, but the idea of God's sovereignty is very much on display in these verses. And the way the psalmist does that is by contrasting man's plans versus God's plans. There's an old saying, if you want to see God laugh, tell him your plans. The reason that's an expression is because most of us have learned that we as humans can make all the plans that we want to. There's nothing wrong with making plans. I'm a planner. Many of you are planners. But ultimately, it is God who determines our course. Proverbs 16 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And this is what's really mind-blowing. God is so big and so powerful and so sovereign that he can even take the free choices of mortal men and women like you and me and use them to accomplish his sovereign Plan. You and I can do nothing that God does not allow us to do. And that's pretty humbling when you really think about it. This is why verse 10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, He makes the plans of the people to no effect. This is particularly true when the nations of the world plot rebellion and wickedness against God. Now, we know that mankind is a fallen race. Amen? We're under the curse of sin. It impacts and affects everything that we do. So it should come as no surprise that when man gets together to create governments, that those governments are also fallen and wicked from Egypt and Babylon in the Old Testament to Rome in the New Testament to the earthly kingdoms of our own day. There have always been governments, sadly, including sometimes our own, that have schemed against God, that have rejected His authority, that have persecuted His people. But what verse 10 tells us is that no counsel against God will stand that no nation that makes plans of rebellion against God and his word will endure. God may allow them to exist for a time for his own sovereign purposes, but in the end, they will face his judgment and wrath. Psalm 2 speaks to this, saying, the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He holds them in derision. There are just a couple times in all of Scripture when God is depicted as laughing, and this is one of them. When the leaders of this world make plans against God and against his people, he laughs because he knows that their plans will come to nothing, and ultimately their rebellion will be extinguished forever. In contrast, verse 11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. You see, the Lord's plans are not like our plans. God is sovereign. And when he makes a plan, it will come to pass, it will stand forever, it will extend to all generations. The fact that God is sovereign over the nations of the earth and that his counsel stands forever gives us as Christians great comfort in a world that can otherwise seem completely out of control. For instance, Pastor Bill made reference to this passage earlier. Romans 13 says that the authorities that exist in this world are appointed by God. No election result ever took God by surprise. God does not watch cable news on election night, hanging on every word of the pundits. He already knows what's going to happen. The fact of the matter is, even the wicked rulers of this world, he allows to hold office for his own divine purposes. So we as Christians don't have to wring our hands and worry when an evil man is in charge. Why not? Because we know at the end of the day, the Lord is sovereign over the nations. His counsel stands forever. In like manner, the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, that even the dwelling places of the nations, the people groups of the world, that their times and boundaries are pre appointed by God. We've got rulers in the world today going to war to expand the boundaries of their empire, to build their own personal kingdom, but in the end, they can't do anything that God does not allow them to do. Isn't that comforting? Man can make all the plans that he wants, but at the end of the day, God's plan will win out. And just so we're clear, God's plan for this world ends with every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the meantime, everything that God allows to happen in this world is ultimately leading up to that climactic moment when the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Verses 10 and 11 remind us God is sovereign over the nations. Well, let's read our last verse this morning. Psalm 33 and verse 12 says this, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people that he has chosen as his own inheritance. Great truth number three, the Lord will redeem a people to himself from the nations. Verse 12 is one of those verses that is often quoted around the 4th of July, and understandably so. But I want us to take just a little deeper look at it and make sure we understand what it's truly saying to us. When the psalmist wrote verse 12, He, of course, had the nation of Israel in mind. The nation of Israel, as we know, was chosen by God to be His special covenant people. This covenant originated with God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 to make from His seed a great nation that would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth, a promise that was ultimately fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Even though God... "'chose Israel as his inheritance.'" In verse 12, if you know much about the Old Testament, you know there were many times when the nation of Israel did not please the Lord. There were many times that they did not worship him as he demanded, that they did not obey his law. For all practical purposes, there were many times when Israel did not fear God, nor revere him as their Lord.'" So I think the psalmist is communicating a couple of things here in verse 12. First, I think verse 12 is an exhortation to his own people. It's an exhortation to the nation of Israel to truly honor God as their Lord, to give him the worship and the obedience that he is due. Indeed, the psalmist tells them they will be blessed if they will do this. But also the second half of verse 12 serves to remind and encourage the people that they are the chosen ones of God. That he chose them by no virtue of their own as his inheritance, as his covenant people. Now, I would submit that there is an application of verse 12, specifically the first part of verse 12, to every earthly government in the world, including America. And that application is this. If any nation of people humbles themselves before God and genuinely turns to Him as their Lord and King, God will greatly bless that nation. There was a time early in our nation's history when we acknowledged the Lord our God And even though not all of our founders were followers of Jesus, they nevertheless recognized the God of the Bible and built a system of government that was founded on biblical principles. I don't think I have to tell you we're a long way from that today. America is no longer, by any definition or stretch of the imagination, a Christian nation. You do not have to be a social scientist or have access to statistical data to understand that America has become more secular, more wicked, more hostile to the church, more unchristlike in just about every single way in recent years. And it seems to be accelerating. We are a nation that calls good evil and calls evil good. It should be no surprise in that we are a nation deeply divided struggling in so many areas. We do not have the blessing of God because we as a nation have rejected Him as our Lord. As Christians, we must pray regularly that our nation will turn back to the Lord, that our leaders will seek His face, that a spiritual awakening may come to this land, that it might start with us. As we sang this morning, we need to pray that God bless America. But we also need to acknowledge that in order for that to happen, we must be willing to forsake our sin and to invite God back into the life of this nation. So on one hand, God will bless any earthly nation that acknowledges Him as Lord. On the other hand, What if I told you that the primary application of this verse is not to any earthly nation, including our own, but rather to the people of God, to Christians? You see, the nation of Israel was the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. But the covenant people of God in the New Testament is spiritual Israel. In other words, the covenant people of God in the New Testament is the church, the redeemed of every tribe and tongue and nation. As Christians, we now together form the nation of God, a nation defined not by ethnicity or geography, but defined by loyalty to our King, King Jesus. We are one in him. 1 Peter 2, nine, speaking to Christians, says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. You see, if you're a Christian here today, you're really a dual citizen. Not only are you a citizen of an earthly nation, America, but first and foremost, you are a citizen of a heavenly nation, the kingdom of God. Of God. And just like the nation of Israel was chosen by God as His own special people, dear Christian, you have been chosen by God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as His own inheritance. Because we, as followers of Christ, are His people, because He has redeemed us from the nations to Himself, we in this room are a blessed people. Aren't you glad that you're saved? Aren't you glad that Jesus died for your sins? Aren't you glad that you have eternal life in heaven to look forward to one day? We're celebrating our earthly freedoms this weekend, and well, we should. But we Christ followers have more to celebrate than anyone because we have been granted spiritual freedom from sin and death through faith in jesus christ blessed is the nation whose god is the lord folks that nation is us we as christians are god's holy nation what an honor what a privilege what a grace that god has bestowed upon us as we prepare for a time of response this morning We've learned three great truths from this text. The Lord is worthy of the worship of the nations. The Lord is sovereign over the nations. The Lord will redeem a people to himself from the nations. As we celebrate our earthly nation tomorrow, may these truths from Psalm 33 fortify and encourage us. And Above all, may we remember that as Christians, we are God's holy nation. And by extension, every local church is an embassy, an outpost of the kingdom of God. Along those lines, let me ask you an important question before we close Are you a member of God's holy nation? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of God? Perhaps you're here today and you're asking, I don't don't know, what do I need to do to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? I'm glad you asked. Jesus once told a man, you must be born again. Unless one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again means that you repent of your sin and you believe upon Jesus, his cross, his resurrection as your only hope for salvation. The Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here today and you're ready to join God's kingdom, if you desire to be part of God's holy nation, the Spirit invites you to come. We, the bride, the church, invite you to come. Come during this song of response. Take my hand. Say, Josh, I want to be a Christian. I want to be part of God's kingdom. I'll be overjoyed to lead you in a prayer of commitment of your life. If you're here today and you need to follow the Lord in baptism or unite with this church in membership, or make any other decision, or just come and pray, that also is what this time is for. I'd like to ask the musicians, if they would, to come to the platform at this time, and we're going to have our song of response. Let's stand.